the bookcase is reachable again. <laughs> Reach for a book. I'm Charlie Gibson. And uh, the bookcase is right in front of you. Yeah, it's not too tall. You can reach any book you want. And welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm Kate Gibson. How are you? <laughs> How am I? I'm running out of ways to start this I thing know. originally. <laughs> we need to learn new languages so we can do this from all. Oh, anyway, Andrew Ridker is our guest today. He has a new book out. It is called Hope. Very simple, Hope. And it is a book that you can't miss. Why, Kate? You really can't. I am sort of the person who looks for books for this show. It's one of the things I really, really love. I got to sit down with this massive email box and I get to just go through and go, oh, this looks good. Oh, that looks good. Oh, that looks good. And when I got to somebody pitching this book, first of all, it made reference to Jonathan Franzen. I'm a big fan of Jonathan Franzen. The Correction is a really terrific book and I recommend it to everybody. But then, so he's compared to Jonathan Franzen, but then you see the cover of this book and you're like, oh, I got to read this. I don't want to tell you guys too much what's on the cover, but if you're going to read this book, Hope by Andrew Ridger, when you walk into any bookstore, you will not be able to miss the cover. It's a very touching picture. And I hope that when bookstores display it, they will put it on a table with the cover visible mm. because it's immediately attractive. And we will talk to Andrew about it, but you can't miss it. And it is very intriguing. And then when you get into the book, it's the story is even more intriguing. Yeah. It's a story about a family. He writes about families in his first book, which was extraordinarily well received, The Altruists. And I think hope will be as well. And his theme is, I think, which I believe in and hold to, which is that no matter what you do in your life, no matter how far you may venture afield, no matter the mistakes you make and how alienated you may get from family members, you are still a member of that family and that biology never leaves you. I would go even farther and be a little bit more specific than that. I think it has to do with caregivers, parents, of course, but, it, you know, caregivers as a whole, who you are raised by shapes who you are. You either try to go into a similar path or perhaps you say, God, I want to go on any path but that one. And so even by rebelling against that path, you are allowing that path to shape your life. And it's a really interesting, avoid your caregivers and parents, embrace your caregivers and parents. They still shape your life, so suck it up. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think it's particularly true of Gideon, who's the son mm. in the Greenspan family, mm. who very much wants to emulate his father, mm. then is alienated from his father. Did I just repeat myself? I think I did. He wants to be like his father. He gets alienated from his father. I'll get this straight. <laughs> and then at the end, you realize that that, pull that his father has on him never leaves him. Yeah. Did that make sense? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I hope so. Absolutely. And that your parents leave indelible mm -hmm. marks on you mm -hmm. for better or worse that will last you and will and, and guess what? You'll probably pass them along to your children. <laughs> and how that dynamic works is really the subject of both of his books. But hope is I just loved it. There's a couple of other things we should mention. First of all, Andrew is young. Boy, is he young. The Altruist was published when he was 29. He's now 32. But boy, is there a, a maturity in his writing. And the second thing is he is a product, like so many writers, of the Iowa Writers Workshop, where writers go to hone their craft. And not only did he go to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which has produced so many great writers, he went there with his first novel, The Altruist, already under contract 
to a major publisher. Yeah, he writes this great family prism novel because that's sort of how I think of them as family prism novels. And you sort of love him because he's so talented, but you hate him because he's so young. And I I feel the same way about the <laughs> Iowa Raiders workshop. You know, he gets the letter that accepts him into the Iowa Raiders workshop, which is basically one of the most prestigious, oldest MFA programs in the country. And he gets his letter from Viking announcing that they're going to buy his book on almost the same day as But what I really like about Andrew is he sort of prepared himself. Not only did he not tell folks at the Raiders workshop, but he mentions an interview. He specifically says, just so you know, I didn't submit anything from the altruists to get into the Iowa's Raiders workshop. He did not want there to be any overlap. So (laughs) The wonderful characterizations of this Jewish family that Andrew Ritker writes about. He describes himself as secular, as you'll hear. But there's no question that his growing up in a Jewish family has had such a very profound effect on him. And it shows through in the way he writes about these characters, the Greenspan family. It's a lovely, lovely book. Hope is the name. Andrew Ridker is the author. Andrew Ridker, it is really a pleasure to have a dynamic young author like yourself in the bookcase. And I want to start by asking you, about the cover of your book. From the get-go, when you see it in a bookstore, you will be confronted, attracted by the cover of this novel. Describe it and why you chose it. It's a picture. Did you choose the picture? And either way, we find it so appealing. Everyone who has seen my copy of the book exclaims over the cover. But as soon as I saw this photo, which was taken by the photographer, Melissa Ann Pinney, I had the same reaction I think most people have when they see it, which was... For me, I have to have this on the cover of my book. It's a set at a bat mitzvah in 1991 at the Knickerbocker Hotel in Chicago. And basically the photo is a girl, a blonde girl who's quite tall, dancing with a brown-haired boy who's quite short. His head comes up to about her chin. And they're slow dancing, and they're looking at the camera with this look of almost sadness or profundity or almost a foreknowledge of like the burdens of life that are to come, even though they're only 13 and they seem too young and almost too innocent to know what it seems like they know in their eyes. And even though there's no bar or bat mitzvah scene in the book and the characters' ages don't track with the people in the photo, there was something about that image that captured everything I want to capture in my writing, which is a sort of a realism that's a little hyper-real and exaggerated, a humor that's also a little sad, a sense of, you know, balancing a sort of relatable, universal experience of that, of being at the dance with the girl who's too tall or the boy who's too short with a very particularly Jewish angle, if you sort of know to look for it. You mentioned that there's a Jewishness if you know what to look for. And I've I've read a little bit about this book, and and I know that you've talked a little bit about one of the themes of the book is about being Jewish enough. Mm. Is that a theme in your life? Define sort of what that means, because I'm a Gentile. So define what that means sort of within your community and how you have dealt with that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll add briefly, too, that speaking to that question of universal and specific, every Jewish person I know who's seen it is like, that's a classic bar bar mitzvah shot. And then my friend, Will, who grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, was like, oh, that looks just like my cotillion classes. You know, so, <laughs> so, you know maybe we all have a little more in common than uh, than we think. I would consider myself a secular Jew or uh, culturally Jewish. I, 
I'm agnostic, I guess, but I grew up going to temple and had a bar mitzvah, but Judaism plays a much bigger role in my life just as a history, a culture, an artistic tradition, a sense of humor. I'm talking with my hands right now, you know, (laughs) more so than a sort of religious faith. And as such, I think a lot about, you know, I might tell people I'm not actually very Jewish at all. And then people who know me would say, like, are you kidding? Have you seen your face? Have you heard your voice? Have you heard your jokes? (laughs) And so it's been a thing I grapple with. My wife, who is Catholic or raised Catholic, made this funny observation that when I take a jog through the neighborhood, we live in Brooklyn and I will run down Eastern Parkway toward what is basically the Lubavitch Hasidic Jewish World Headquarters, which is like a handful of blocks down the road. And then I get there and that's usually my turnaround point and I jog back. And she told me once, she was like, that's a perfect metaphor for your entire relationship. With you. <laughs> you know, you run towards it. And as soon as you're there, you're like, no, no, no. And you, and you turn back around. That's probably the best way to phrase it. But I'm interested in the way that you do it. Cause I've heard you describe your writing as a little bit like Rashomon, which I think is really interesting. If anybody's ever seen the Kurosawa film, it's basically there's an incident and then you examine the incident from a whole bunch of different perspectives. Both of your books you've written from all the family members' perspectives. I'm interested, one, if you do that in order. And two, did you know you were going to do it that way? Or did you start with one narrator and go, no, I think mom really needs to tell her story here. Like, how did you come to the conclusion that you needed to break it down that way? Yeah, in the altruists with the first book, funnily enough, it was sort of split between the three surviving characters, the father and his two children, because the The mother has passed away sort of before much of the action of the book takes place. And I kept getting this note from early readers who said, we're really interested in this mother character, even though she is deceased for the present action. There's a lot of flashbacks and we really want to see more of her. And I had a very interesting experience where my family was on vacation in Morocco, which then sort of makes its own appearance in Hope. And we were riding in a van for like six hours a day across the country from, you know, one city to another. And I sat in the back row with my mom and basically said, tell me your life. I want to know, I want to know all these things that I've never really had a chance to ask you about. And, and with, with this big asterisk of like, don't be freaked out if it ends up in print. Uh, we, uh, We had this wonderful conversation where I really feel like I got to know a side of her that I'd never seen before. And that wound up being many people's favorite character or favorite sections involved. This material that grew out of talking with my mom. For Hope, I always knew it would be multiple characters because of that Rashomon effect you described. I like the idea that we do things in our life that we think will play out one way but someone else might experience that decision in a completely different way, or there might be unintended consequences that affect Mm -hmm. someone else in a completely different way. Scott is completely wound up in a situation with his own mother, which causes him to make some mistakes, never thinking for a minute how that might play out for his son, who of course is thinking all the while about what his dad is doing and how that will affect him. So I'm interested in that, but I also, rather than go full Rashomon and have it just be, you know, one event from all these angles, I also like the idea of a novel organized like a relay race where these characters are holding the plot baton and passing it to each other in part because it gives a kind of structure to a a book. When you start writing a novel, it's a little overwhelming. It could be literally anything and setting up sort of boundaries like, you know, lines on a tennis court is a way to say, okay, this is the, the, the sort of limitation I've given myself. So I'm going to play, I'm going to try to get creative within these borders. 
So I knew that was going to be the structure going forward. And I just, yeah, I like the idea that the plot would ripple out in a direction while still allowing for those Rashomon-esque looking over your shoulder and saying, what, what was that and how did that affect me while still maintaining forward momentum, if that makes sense. But is there trial and error in that? Like, do you ever sit down to write the, you know, okay, now I'm going to write the sister. And then you sit down and go, nope, that's not the sister. Like, do you, oh. I mean, is there trial and error in that? Absolutely. I mean, I should say before, basically for two years, actually the two years I was in graduate school, I was working on a novel every day of the week. It was what I workshopped in class. And by the end of the program, it was my thesis. And by the time I graduated, I just had this sinking feeling that it wasn't working. And I had that sinking feeling building in me for those two years. But it's so hard to abandon something. You know, it's like the sunk cost principle. You're like, I'll just spend more time and energy on this because I already have. <laughs> and and everyone in the program had read it. And it it just felt like this inescapable burden and once I left the program, I realized I, it was like the thought escaped Pandora's box of like, you don't have to do this. And once it was out of the box, I couldn't, I couldn't put it back. So after a number of, uh, you know, panic attacks and, and paper bags to the mouth, genuine kind of life crisis stuff, I dug into that manuscript and I said, what if this is salvageable? And there was a family in the book named the Greenspans, who are not quite the central characters, but they were in the book. And I sort of scooped them up, and that's when hope really got going. And even within that process, it would be like, I'm writing the daughter, and she has a completely different job or career or plot trajectory, and you figure that out as you go. But in a big-picture way, I had invested two years in this thing that really wasn't working out, and I learned a real lesson in, as soon as that voice is in my head of like, I don't know if this is working, I try to listen to it very early instead of silencing it to protect my ego or whatever. As I read the book, I kept coming back to the title Hope and thinking Andrew is approaching these folks, I think, sympathetically and looking for the redeeming elements in each of them. Is that true? Did you find affection and great humanity in each of your characters? Certainly. I, you know, they say scratch a cynic and you'll find an idealist, a disappointed idealist underneath. And I very much identify with that. That interplay of cynicism and idealism is a big part of my personality, and I think it finds its way into the books. I saw some, there was a review where someone referred to the title and they said something like, you know, like Ridker, who has unironically titled his novel Hope, and I sat there thinking, how do you know? Because I don't even know. <laughs> you know uh, I think there's a bit of irony in there, but also a lot of sincerity, and I would sort of describe what I look for in art as hard-won sincerity, which is to say mm. not pure irony or cynicism where the author or filmmaker, whoever has created characters out of thin air just to beat them up. And that doesn't make sense to me. But I also don't like stuff that from chapter one is very warm and fuzzy and almost assuming that I, the reader, love these characters just as much as the author does when I haven't even met them yet. I like to come to a place of sincerity and hope and optimism, having gone through the sort of trials and tribulations of people messing up and failing. We shouldn't let time go on without mentioning this book is flat out funny. It is very funny. The first section, The Hunger Banquet, sort of satirizes do-gooders with suburban viewpoints, their viewpoints of those less fortunate, and satirizes them to a fairly well. And the second section, which I love, is a protracted scene between son and 
Jewish mother. It reminded me of the old joke of a Jewish mother who gives her son two shirts and he comes down wearing one and she says, what, you didn't like the other one? Well, indeed, Marjorie, the mother, is amusing throughout and a a brilliant, I think, embodiment of type. Is it critical to you to include humor in a book? Yeah, it's funny. Whenever I get a question like that, I it, it almost, it feels almost like I am being asked I sometimes wonder if people think that I, I, or any comic novelist or comedian or whoever would sit down and sort of write something that isn't funny and then almost go and insert the humor almost after the fact when in practice it just sort of comes out this way. It's, that's the language I sort of speak in or write in. I have a hard, in, in fact, I think it's actually harder for me to hold in and sort of ask myself, is this joke serving the story or character development, or do I just think it's funny? And if it's just funny, maybe I should cut it because I want this to be a novel that works as a novel, as a piece of art. I want to come to the last sentence of the book because it's so neat, the last scene, which so neatly ties the book together. And I think sums up all the characters. This is not a spoiler because if you, the reader, go and cheat and read the last sentence, it won't make any sense to you unless you've read the rest of the book. But it does so neatly sum up, I think, all of the characters, but particular Gideon, about whom the scene is described. When did it come to you, and when did you think this really is a good way to end this and make the title true? Yeah, well, I have to give credit where it's due. The very last moment was suggested by my wife in our conversations about the book in its in its drafting process. But to zoom out a little bit, That final segment, which again, I think you're right, it's not a spoiler and this will make no sense to anyone, but the sun winds up through a series of bizarre plot turns in Syria, ostensibly to fight in the Syrian civil war, which is something that interestingly, a number of young, disaffected, sometimes or often Jewish, liberal or left Americans ended up doing, fighting for the Kurdish cause. I was really interested in that, those people and why they would do that and what brought them to do that. But Gideon goes and he finds that he's not seeing a lot of combat. And he realizes that he's not seeing combat because he, as an American of affluence, is more valuable to this cause as a sort of poster boy than a combatant who might get killed. And he's basically left to realize you can go as far flung as you want. You can go around the world and you're still you. You're in the line is something like he was still a Greenspan, his last name. And then there were previous versions of the book where I was like, is he going to die in combat? Is a mine going to explode? I mean, what would be a fitting end for this book and this character? And then I sort of thought back and remembered, you know, this is a kid who's wanted to be like his father his whole life. His father's a doctor. He goes to medical school or, or rather pre-med. He drops out because he doesn't want to be like his father anymore. But in that same way of we can't really escape our families even when we and maybe we shouldn't entirely escape our families. He's gone as far away from his family as he can, but it turns out the one good thing, the good deed he can do in this moment is not saving the world, but it's it's helping someone with a pretty minor injury and the kind of injury that you could do if you'd gone to taken some classes in pre-med or even taken a first aid course. Before I let you go, the Iowa Writers Workshop, I wanted to ask you, you published simultaneously to your acceptance. I just want to ask, how did that shape your experience at the Iowa Writers Workshop? And also, I would be afraid that everybody would hate me. Like, 
like that my picture would end up on a dartboard somewhere and they would rip it down every time I come in the room. But, um, I mean, how did that shape your experience at the, at the workshop? Yeah, you publish a novel as you get there, as <laughs> no. you get a very successful novel. The book came out at the tail end of my time there, but I, I had like two months left. So it was this kind of thing that was floating with me through the program. The crazy story is that I got accepted to the program and sold the manuscript to Viking in roughly the same week. So it was a real embarrassment of riches kind of week. I really was careful or I tried to be careful to not to not talk about the book for quite a long time so as not to be that person. <laughs> in a very real sense, I think my self-esteem was a little bit protected by the fact of that book. Workshops can be pretty brutal. For for your listeners who might not know, you know, you show up to class, you turn in a story or a novel chapter, everyone in the group discusses it as though you're not there and you, the author, are not permitted to speak. You're just sort of taking notes. And boy, do they pretend like you're not there. <laughs> you know, uh, it can be really helpful and it can be really... I saw people get set back in a big way because... So much of writing is just having the confidence to sit down and do the work in the morning. And if a group of your peers have just trashed your book or whatever, it makes it very hard to do that. So I could always have this escape hatch in my mind. Andrew Ridker, it is a pleasure yeah, to talk to you. you. Good to have you in the bookcase. Your book is wonderful from cover to end. One of your characters, William, says the world doesn't need another mediocre <laughs> novel. And you have not produced a mediocre novel. This is a wonderful, wonderful read. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid Fire for Andrew Rickard. Lesser known book you recommend to everyone. The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Hmm. Why? Uh, it's not her best known novel, but I think it's her best novel. It's really funny. It has one of the most unlikable, shallow, and vain lead characters in any book I've ever read. But it's so sharp and it's so funny. And it's if you think of Edith Wharton and you think 
dusty old drapes or something. You, you kind of have like a sense of her. This book will shatter that. It is <laughs> venomous. It's so funny and so acidic in its humor. And I, I think it's the one to start with. I wish that's the book she was known for. Author you will read simply because he or she wrote it. Ben Lerner, uh, everything he puts out, I, I read. I'll go to the store the week it comes out. There's not a lot of people like that, but when he has a new book out, I just, I have to see what he's up to because he's so, he's so smart and trailblazing. And I just, for a week after I read his books, I can't write because I just think, well, it's over. Writing's been done. And then I go back. (laughs) (laughs) If listeners were going to start with a Ben Lerner, which would you have them start with? In a strange way, if you're completely new to him, I might say actually go backwards. Start with his most recent novel, The Topeka School. It's maybe the most, it sort of is masquerading as a conventional novel. It's a family novel with multiple, multiple perspectives, much like the kinds of books I write. But there's a lot of interesting formal experimental stuff happening under the surface. A completely untrue Untrue stereotype about Jewish mothers. Wow. Uh, <laughs> they're also true. <laughs> I would say that the, maybe this isn't an untrue stereotype, but just the idea that the criticism, I feel like they have this, this do, there's a stereotype of they're hypercritical, but they're also hyper loving and sort of smothering in their love. And I would say that like both are true in a way that sort of proves the other one wrong, which is to say the criticism is always coming with love and the love is always coming with qualified criticism. And I think those things need to coexist (laughs) in order to raise the kind of normal neurotic and not a sort of crazy neurotic that, uh, that they tend to raise. Advice you would give to a writer starting out? Read widely, write without expectation that a given thing will be published, and then also maybe wait to publish until you're ready. Young writers make big strides week to week, month to month. And I know a lot of people that think that publishing something will sort of be it. It'll change everything. It'll, their, their whole life will be different. And uh, it's my sad uh, responsibility to say you will still be you after your book comes out. <laughs> so publish when you feel ready and when you think your work is as truly as good as you can get it in that moment and enjoy the time when you're a sort of unknown quantity to just get better in practice. A revered book that you read and you're sorry you did, that you just didn't get. I want to say this with a, this is one where I know that I will come to this later in life and get it and love it, but I really struggle with Proust. I I couldn't get through Swan's Way. I'm not in any position to knock it. I'm the idiot here. If you hate a book you're reading, do you put it down? I hate to do it. Yeah, if I hate it, I put it down. But sometimes if I'm already halfway through, I will read to the end in a begrudging, angry way, which is not a fun way to (laughs) to read a book. But I have this thing where I want to understand it so badly. I'm always thinking I'm wrong, so I have to... I think that maybe if I push through to the end, I'll, I'll, I'll get what everyone's talking about. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a masochistic thing, but I will I will see them to the end unless it's really, really, really bad. Oh, I love that idea that you finished it, but you just resent the yeah, hell exactly. out of the author. That's terrific. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm in the That's middle great. of one right now where I feel that way. <laughs> and finally, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? This is going to be a coherent sentence. I'm just pick, I'm just picking five here. Uh, writing, family, friends, nature, reading. One thing I should say coming out of that conversation, 
It sounds as if this is a book very much written for people of Andrew's faith, but this is a wonderful read for anybody, anybody. It appeals to all, I think, all faiths. I think it's a very universal theme, especially for members of a marginalized population. We talked to him about, can you be Jewish enough? I think for a marginalized population, that's always an issue. Am I black enough? Am I Hispanic enough? Now, I say that from the perspective of a white woman, but it's a theme that we've come up against in lots of different works that we've read, and I I think it's very present here as well. Andrew Ritker. The book is Hope. Read it. And certainly look at the cover before you do, because it's wonderful. Our bookstore today, R.J. Julia Bookshop in Madison, Connecticut. And I think it's apt, as you'll hear, Roxanne Cody is the owner of the bookshop. And why she named it R.J. Julia, I think, is a really interesting story. Roxanne Cody, it is a pleasure to have you with us. R.J. Julia Bookshop in Madison, Connecticut. I'm, I know you get the question all the time. I love the story of where R.J. Julia came from. Your name isn't Julia, so <laughs> where did that name, how did the bookstore get named? So both my parents are immigrants, and both of them are Holocaust survivors. But my dad uh, lived in a little town in Hungary called Turek Sepmiklos, which is about 50 miles west of Budapest. and The Nazis were, or the Hungarians that were working with the Nazis were in his community by the time when my father was still in high school and not quite done, or what was called gymnasium. And so my grandmother, you know, all five foot one of her, got herself down to whatever the headquarters were in their town and asked if my father could stay in school. It was just a few months. And as you know, Jews were asked to in school. And the official said to my grandmother, like with knowing that that was impossible, that he could go to the private school, which of course took money. Jews no longer could have jobs or have businesses. So my grandmother did some version of panhandling and, you know, asking people for money for my father to finish school, which he did. He finished high school in their town. And in short order, he was drafted into the Hungarian army, which was annexed uh, by the Nazis. And my grandmother was shipped off to Bergen-Belsen and killed. And so when I left my finance career in New York and opened the bookstore, I thought, well, why not honor the woman that ignited my father's passion for reading and therefore mine in a building full of books would be the best way to do it. So her name was Yulishka, which is Julia. The joy is my parents were alive when I opened the store. So my dad got to see this building full of books named after his mother. You were saying you were a, you were an economics, you were a finance major. And I would imagine one of the first classes in that major would be don't open a bookstore. If you want to make money, don't open a bookstore. So I got to know, like, you know, what? how did you fall down that rabbit hole, as it were? Well, you know, what was interesting, Kate, is so I was a national tax director at one of the big accounting firms. And I was turning 40, didn't have a child. And Kevin and I had had a lot of good fortune. 
And I loved what I did. People laugh when I say, no, I love tax law. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, people as we all like, do. Who doesn't though? I mean, really? I mean, I have, I have a t-shirt, you know, so exactly. So, you know, it was a little bit of, you know, my midlife crisis was I was going to move from head to heart in what I did and decided to leave New York. We always had a second home up in Connecticut to open the bookstore. So it is the saying that if you want to make a small fortune in a bookstore, start with a large one. It's, it's good advice. So at 40, I did that. What's interesting to me is you didn't just take a flyer on a bookstore. You decided after a few years to sell it, and then you doubled down and didn't sell it, but expanded it. So now you are, what, double the size, triple the size? Because you have an association with Wesleyan University, one of the fine, fine colleges in this country, decided to have you run their bookstore. I don't know of any other college or university that is affiliated with an independent bookstore. Yeah, there aren't many. And Michael Roth, who's the president of Wesleyan, and is he had been a customer at RJ Joya in Madison. And so Michael sort of bucked the trend of having a Follett's or a Barnes and Noble or some other kind of institutionally run store because he felt that Wesleyan's brand was independent and thoughtful. And that R.J. Julius could bring that to it. And it's been a wonderful partnership. I just adore working with Wesleyan. And, you know, it's an, on, it's an honor to do these things. It really, really is an honor. So, yeah, I feel, you know, very fortunate. I wanted to ask you, because from what I understand, well, I've, I've listened now, so and I know that you are as foolish as we are in the sense that you, you also do a podcast. The name of the podcast is Just the Right Book, if people are looking for it. We're big believers in more is more. So I want to talk to you about how you got started and what the podcast sort of philosophy is. I was kind of reluctant. Although, as you might figure out in this interview, I do like to talk. <laughs> the focus of it is to interview nonfiction writers, and it's a way of sort of teasing people's interest. You say you are fiercely committed, fiercely committed to putting the right book in the right hands. Mm -hmm. I wonder what that means to you. How do you interpret that? Why did you say that? I said that. Because I've learned in 33 or 34 years in the bookstore that you can't judge a book by its cover and you can't judge a person by how they look. You know, the gray-haired lady, which I would be if I didn't dye my hair, the gray-haired lady doesn't necessarily want to read romance. She might want to read horror. And the 22-year-old coming in with tattoos and rings all over their face might want to be reading romance. And so the right book in the right hand is our job as a bookseller is to understand what it is that interests them at that moment. Because one day, Katie, you might come in and want and be in the mood to be distracted. You've had a bad day. You've had a fight with your husband and you just want to be amused. And the next day you might want to be provoked. And so the right book in the right hand is listening to the customer, the reader and figuring out from the, you know, tens of thousands of books in the bookstore, what's the right book for them at that moment? What got you really excited this summer? What were the titles you were shoving at people this summer? I love Irish writers and Sebastian mm -hmm. Barry's 
new book. Irish writers just know how to do it better than anybody. And Sebastian Barry's new book, which is dark and sad, is exquisitely written and, you know, makes you think about how you want to live your life. And, you know, it's why I think a lot of us read. Roxanne Cody, RJ Julia Bookshop. Thanks ever so much for being with us. It was fascinating to talk to you. Yeah, we'll be visiting and listening. Yeah, so fun. So fun to uh, spend some time with both of you. Have a good day. Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia, Boston Post Road in Madison, Connecticut. Uh, I look forward to going to that myself when I go home because she sounds amazing. Yep. A reminder about the amazing folks who make this podcast possible, speaking of amazing, and then a coda from Andrew Ritker. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. I will just tell the old Jewish joke uh, that gives that chapter its title which barely even is a joke. A Jewish mother is walking down the beach and she sees uh, her son thrashing about in the waves and calls for help. And she says, please, my son, the doctor is drowning. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.